Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus. Chris will be back tomorrow, but we're joined by Plymouth County uh, uh, District Attorney Candidate uh, Rashawn Hall. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Hall. Thanks for having me, Marcus. So uh, before we get started, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience and tell us why you're running for um, uh, Plymouth County DA. Sure thing. Uh, so Rasan Hall, I'm a resident of the city of Brockton. I'm a civil rights attorney and ordained reverend, and I used to be a prosecutor. And I'm running to reclaim the spirit of justice. Um, there are so many injustices that I've seen throughout the criminal legal system through the various roles that I've served. And over the last several years, my conversations with people in Plymouth County and the things I've observed myself uh, have drawn me, called me uh, to this uh, position. And so it's not so much uh, a matter of wanting to run for DA, but it's a matter of being called to service for the people that I care about and in the community where I live. We're speaking with, uh, with Rashawn Hall. Is it Rashawn, Rashawn, I'm Rashawn, sorry. Rashawn, Rashawn Hall, silent. I'm sorry. That's we're speaking okay. with Rashawn Hall, candidate uh, for Plymouth County DA. So what are the, and we're taking your calls too, if you want to call in at 508-996-0500 and you can message on the app chat. Uh, What's the difference between, what are the differences between you and uh, D.A. Cruz? Well, well, one of the most significant differences is that I have a vision of justice that's more fair, equitable, and just that moves away from the fear-mongering of scaring people. I think one of the things that uh, seasoned politicians are good at are meeting people at their base, which is fear. And so when you think about the role of district attorney, one of the things that's easy to generate is this idea that the people uh, in this community are not safe unless the district attorney is doing their job which to a certain degree is true, but to generate that type of fear and anxiety around the election, saying that the only thing that is going to keep the community safe are the things that the district attorney is doing when that's in reality not true. And so having a vision for a more fair, just and equitable system is really what I'm trying to bring uh, to this office, making sure that in addition to holding people accountable who have caused harm and disruption in our communities, that we're treating victims and survivors with dignity and respect, not just like like a witness in a case, but making sure that they're getting the services that they need, being intentional about raising the level of transparency and accountability uh, in the office so that the residents of Plymouth County know what's being done and said in our names and on our tax dollars, being intentional about addressing racial disparities, as well as taking a harm reduction approach for folks who are struggling with substance use disorder and mental health issues and engaging the community more so that uh, people are engaged in the process of making sure that we get better outcomes whether it's community organizations, uh, partner programs, or people with lived experience. So you talked a little, uh, a bit about harm reduction, uh, harm reduction measures as, as district attorney. Uh, what does that look like for a um, uh, a defendant who is uh, afflicted with uh, some type of addiction or mental health issue? Sure, it's finding the appropriate programs for them. Sometimes it's diverting them out of the system altogether to find the programs that are going to give them the services and treatment. Uh, that they need. Uh, I'm, I'm aware that the uh, the incumbent believes that cold turkey is the best way for people uh, to get treatment and services, but the reality is the only service program that is consistently available for everyone is jail. And I think that the listeners would uh, shudder at the idea that uh, the only way that their children or loved ones could get treatment is detoxing in a jail cell. 
um, and going cold turkey. That doesn't work for everyone. It may work for some. I met a woman tonight at a uh, overdose vigil who said she went cold turkey and that is what did it for her. But I know a lot of people who need medication assistant treatment to ease off of those drugs or to get therapy for the underlying trauma that they're facing. And so a one size fits all approach is never going to work. And so for people like that, it means, um, you know, again, diverting them to programming that's going to help them get the treatment and services that they need, uh, but also using the platform of district attorney to advocate for some legislative shifts in um, spending and programming to make sure that people have other alternatives um, so that we don't have to rely on the criminal legal system for people to get treatment. If, if the jail is the best way for people to get services, that's an indictment on us as a society. So you talked about uh, legislative uh, action to get certain uh, uh, resources shift. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I think a perfect opportunity is um, looking at people who are uh, struggling with substance use disorder and have pending criminal cases, uh, ensuring that if they violate because they haven't been able to stay clean, that the alternative for them is not prison or incarceration or jail, but that they can continue in a treatment program. Another thing that um, in some respects has been controversial for few, for some people, but is based in evidence has been successful uh, is safe consumption sites. And, you know, people will say, well, why create a location where people can come and use drugs? So let's continue to have people shoot up in the McDonald's bathroom where there's no services available, where there's nobody going to be able to find them unless they find them too late when they've overdosed. Instead, having somebody come into a place where they're greeted, their dignity and humanity is recognized, and that they're connected with people who can provide them services. Research shows that the places where they have those safe consumption sites, there have been overdoses, but there have not been deaths. And so when you look at any street corner where people are struggling with substance use disorder and shooting up and dying... I would much rather have a place where there's some treatment and services available to help transition people out of uh, um, their substance use disorder and into uh, services. So, th- so those are some of the things that uh, I'm talking about um, when it comes to a harm reduction approach. So uh, there's some, there are some. Uh legislative proposals by Charlie Baker, and he's kind of made this a leg- uh, legacy project. Uh, D.A. Cruz and our D.A. Tom Quinn um, both support the dangerousness bill that would expand uh, the, uh, the expand the conditions in which uh, the, 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 the district attorneys could ask for a dangerousness hearing. For people who don't know, that's, um, you know, they request a hearing, they can be held for three days uh, until that hearing, and it's 120 days for district court without bail, 180 days for superior court, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, What's your position on that bill? I appreciate and understand the spirit behind the bill um, and uh, recognize the lived experience of victims and survivors of domestic and sexual violence, particularly children. Um, But I think this is a broadcast net to address a very narrow problem. When we look at the use of the dangerousness statute, Um, And the gross racial disparities that result uh, as a function of district attorneys overuse of it, it becomes a problem. It's one thing to um, acknowledge that these disparities exist. It's another thing to say we don't overuse it. The data just doesn't bear that out. It's being overused ever since the law was changed um, by the Supreme Judicial Court and the 2018 criminal law reform bill. We've seen a precipitous increase in the use of the dangerousness statute, which people are held without bail. And the thing that is troubling about holding people without bail is, one, they cannot participate in the preparation of their defense. uh, But two, 
Um, there are people who can lose their jobs. They can lose their housing. In some instances, they can lose custody of their children. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that is concerning to me is when I heard my opponent speaking about this the other night, um, saying, you know, we don't need more data to know that somebody who rapes a child is dangerous. That is true. But what happened to the constitutional presumption of innocence? When somebody is charged with an offense, they are presumed innocent until proven guilty. And there have been many instances where people have been accused of a crime, charged with a crime, and the evidence brought forward ultimately surmises that there is not a crime there and the charges get dismissed. And for prosecutors who are in many instances motivated by the fear of a bad headline, um, will use and manipulate that uh, 58A statute to ensure that the people don't get out. And also there's something to be said about how it's used to leverage guilty pleas. Because when a person is held on bail, they are much more likely to plead yeah. guilty to resolve the case. And that's a major bargaining chip that prosecutors have that people don't talk about. And that's one of the things that I've tried to draw more attention to uh, in the past work that I've done as well. Yeah, I've had experience with that as a bar advocate, actually, uh, where someone's held and they're just like, I got to get out of here for this reason and that right. reason. Yeah. Right. So we're speaking with uh, Rasan uh, Hall, candidate for uh, district attorney in Plymouth County. So you were instrumental in the um, in the in the drafting and the, the passage of the police reform bill of, of 2020 in the wake of in the wake of George Floyd uh, and Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, what um, what did you did you think that bill was expansive enough? Would you have done things differently? Uh, what's your general opinion on, on what's in that bill? I, I thought there were some provisions of it that were a good first step. I think the creation of a post commission was something that uh, when I was working at the ACLU that we had been advocating for uh, for a while. It, lays, it raises the level of professionalism and standards. Uh, Excuse me. Within the within the profession, Massachusetts was one of only three states that did not have a post system. So an officer could be fired by one department and then go work for another department because they had not been licensed or certified by the state. The barber that I go to is licensed. The people who my wife goes to to get her nails done is licensed. The people you take your dog to uh, to go see as a veterinarian, they are all licensed. But police officers who have the power to take liberty and in some instances life had not been licensed. And so that was something that was significant. I think one of the significant shortcomings was any reform to the qualified immunity doctrine. Um, And it's been a contentious point uh, in law enforcement circles and community Mm -hmm. advocacy uh, circles, but it is a, you know, for your listeners who are unfamiliar with it, it is a a legal doctrine that protects law enforcement um, from uh, being held civilly liable uh, for their misconduct and the way that the courts have interpreted over the years has made it almost as if police officers cannot be held uh, accountable because there is this requirement that the officer had to understand that their conduct uh, was unconstitutional. And the only way that they do that is if there was a case on point where the facts are almost identical. And because this doctrine exists, there's never going to be a case on point that's (laughs) almost identical. (laughs) And so I thought that was a huge shortcoming. And, And just for last point on this, just for the people who say, well, we need to make sure that the officers are protected for doing their jobs. Well, the Fourth Amendment protects police officers for doing their jobs because it protects them. Um, their their actions are justified if they are deemed to be reasonable. That's what the Fourth Amendment provides for. So, you know, I, I just think um, there was a missed opportunity there. We're speaking with uh, Rasan Hall, candidate for uh, Plymouth County District Attorney, and we're taking your calls at 508-996-0500. Let's go to the phones. Good evening. Thanks for holding. Hello. Yes. Hi. Um, 
I have a question for Mr. Hall. Um, I read about you and I learned that you helped lead this education effort across the Commonwealth on what a district attorney's office really does. Can you explain what that program is? Sure. And thank you for Thanks the question. Thanks for the call. Yeah. So, um, I used to work for the American Civil Liberties of Massachusetts and uh, up until December of last year. And in 2017, uh, we launched a public education campaign called What a Difference a DA Makes. And essentially, the purpose of the campaign was to educate Massachusetts voters on the role, power, and influence of district attorneys. I knew uh, from my own practice as an assistant district attorney, I worked in Suffolk County for eight years, handling any number of gun, drug, and homicide cases, working in some of the toughest sections of the city of Boston and handling some pretty significant cases. I knew what it was that district attorneys did. I knew how much power uh, we had. I knew that we had the ability to decide who got charged, what they got charged with, make recommendations for bail requests, turn over what discovery we thought was relevant, um, engage in plea negotiations, which we just talked about. Sometimes sure. we could leverage, um, make sentencing recommendations, and even decide which cases we were going to take up on appeal. Uh, but I also knew from my time advocating at the ACLU how district attorneys stood in opposition of progressive reform. So whether it was the uh, criminal law reform bill of 2018 or whether or not it was res resolving uh, the uh, drug laboratory scandal, district attorneys consistently stood in opposition of those types of reforms or uh, addressing those injustices. But we didn't realize how much the public understood or didn't understood. So we did some surveying and we found out that four out of 10 Massachusetts voters didn't know that the DA was an elected position. And so to this notion that somebody could be continually elected uh, year or, or term after term, in part, it's because people didn't even realize that they could vote for this uh, position. And so we launched this public education campaign because 81% of voters said after they learned about what it is DAs do, that they paid more, that they would pay more attention. And we saw a substantial increase in ballots cast for district attorneys throughout the Commonwealth in the five contested races. And so that's the work uh, that I did uh, back in 2017, 2018. And continuing on uh, from that. And that's also part of the experience that I had that informed my decision to run. We're speaking with Plymouth County District Attorney Candidate Rasan Hall, and we're also taking your calls at 508-996-0500. Good evening. Thanks for holding. You're live. Uh, yes. Hi. This has been a, uh, a great discussion. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question about money in politics. Okay. Um, and I think I probably speak for most everyone when I say that it's really the, the biggest problem we have in politics today. Um, I know it's also a big reason why um, uh, it's hard for candidates like Mr. Hall to uh, step up and run. So, um, you know, running against a 20-year incumbent like we have now. So thank you. Thank you for running, first of all. Um, but, you know, we know that money has corrupted our politicians. It's corrupted the process. Um, but my question is going to bring it down to really sort of micro-local here. Um, so my question for you, Mr. Hall, is this. Um, as district attorney, what would be your policy on soliciting donations from your staff and employees of the district attorney's office? Um, or for that matter, um, anyone with business before the DA's office? Yeah. Thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you for that um, question, too. I, I think as it as it pertains to the staff of the district attorney's office, I think it is entirely inappropriate 
for the district attorney to solicit funds and uh, from any member of the staff or require uh, people to work on the campaign. If I'm not mistaken, um, uh, the last uh, challenger to uh, the incumbent, John Bradley, who ran, uh, sued the, the district attorney based on, in part, some of the allegations about retribution for failing to be a part of the campaign team or, or make contributions. I can't remember specifically okay. uh, what it was. And so, uh, you know, if elected district attorney, when elected district attorney, uh, I would prohibit any staff or employees from making contributions to the campaign or being required to work or volunteer uh, on the campaign. I think when it comes to people who have business uh, before the district attorney's office, uh, it's a little more fluid. I think the, the issue that has transpired in, in Suffolk County, where the interim district attorney um, is alleged to have requested funds from uh, an individual who represents a client whose case was ultimately dismissed. Uh, I, I think that raises significant concerns, but I also recognize um, that there are people across the board that have business before the district attorney's office, and I'm uh, a, a little less concerned uh, about that, but certainly don't want to uh, put any undue influence on the people who the district attorney has supervisory authority over. So, uh, Rasan, um, you've gotten a lot of support from uh, uh, elected officials in the greater Boston area, in Plymouth County, and uh, even statewide. Our, our two senators, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, have endorsed you. I know Joe Kennedy has, endor uh, has, uh, has endorsed you. Um, Andrea Campbell, a uh, candidate for attorney general, has endorsed you. So um, why is there? Why do you think there's so much enthusiasm on the Democratic side for your campaign? It's because I'm bringing a new vision for what this role can be. But I also think it's because people know me and they know my work, not only uh, from the time that I was a prosecutor in Suffolk County handling serious cases on behalf of the residents of Boston, and that's where I made many connections, but also my time as the deputy director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, handling race and national origin discrimination cases, being involved in the redistricting process for the 2011 uh, decennial redistricting process, um, my time as working at the ACLU, working with people in the state legislature as well as in city council and, and being an ordained reverend, ministering to families uh, as a part of the congregation that I'm a member of, but also being active and engaged in civic advocacy organizations throughout the greater Boston area. And it just so happened that my wife and I decided to make Brockton our home. And because I was uh, living in Brockton and saw the needs and the concerns of the residents of Plymouth County that I decided to run. And so when I made that decision, an announcement, there was this groundswell of support from people who knew me and who have worked with me and then believed in my character and integrity and what I bring uh, to this position and to this office. And slowly over time, as I've made more contacts and inroads with people in Plymouth County, uh, I've been seeing that level of support as well. Uh, Rasan Hall, candidate for Plymouth County D. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're going to be taking your calls at 508-996-0500. No. Why should you download the WBS? I accidentally pressed the commercial button twice. <laughs> so we're back with uh, Rasan Hall, candidate, uh, Plymouth County uh, District Attorney candidate. So, uh, Rasan, um, you 
worked in the Suffolk County DA's office, right? Yes. And so um, I'm interested to know what type of cases you worked on while you were while you were there, and uh, understanding that DA's uh, assistant uh, DA's mostly take marching orders from the top. How were you able to use your discretion to um, better execute a, a different um, uh, prosecutorial philosophy? Yeah, thank you for that question, Marcus, because I think it's key to how I view the office and the role of district attorney. Um, when I started out, I was in Dorchester District Court, and I was there for three years. And, um, you know, I handled, you know, motor vehicle offenses, domestic violence cases, assault and battery, schoolyard fights, mm-hmm. um, uh, drug uh, sales, shootings, um, OUIs. And um, when I first started out, uh, very green behind the ear. And fortunately, we had a bit of training but in retrospect, it wasn't enough to be fully prepared to understand how to handle these cases. I remember my first day in the arraignment session uh, when I was given a case and the person who was supervising me said, go up and make an arraign- a bail argument. Yeah. I, all I had was the police report and the person's criminal record and the bail statute. And that was my first time. And I looked at him and I said, well, how much bail should I ask for? And he shrugged his shoulders. He's like, oh, yeah, ask 10 different DAs. You're going to get 10 different answers. Yeah. Like, that's not a way to prepare uh, people. At the same time, over the years, I had more experience with different cases, got insight and instruction from uh, judges and uh, were, was able to use my discretion and decide these certain types of fences I'm just going to dismiss at arraignment. And, and that's something that I find very interesting uh, is something that is consistent. Um, and many prosecutors and defense attorneys will tell you this, that for the most part, prosecutors have that discretion to dismiss low level nonviolent offenses that are clogging up the system. Um, And instead of taking a hard stance that we have to prosecute every single case that is brought before us, um, it's just not realistic. There were in any given moment, I had a a caseload of 300 cases when I was in the district court, because by the time I was there for three years, uh, I was one of the more senior prosecutors handling the more significant cases. Uh, And then I got promoted uh, to uh, uh, a unit called the Safe Neighborhood uh, Initiative, which was a partnership um, between community partner organizations. And I was responsible for a particular neighborhood, the Upham's Corner section uh, of, of Dorchester, and, you know, prosecuting the cases that came out of there, particularly gang uh, cases. And I was there uh, in, in that unit for another three years, and then if ultimately promoted to the senior trial unit uh, for the last two years of my time there. And there I was handling uh, homicide cases, handled several homicide cases and secured convictions um, in those cases. So I had a, a broad array of cases, did grand jury investigations, um, into a number of cases, worked uh, hand in hand with law enforcement when I was a part of the Safe Neighborhood Initiative Unit. I was also the point prosecutor uh, for rapid response uh, out of Area B2 in Roxbury. So whenever, um, you know, the anti-force uh, or, or excuse me, the um, uh, anti-gang unit uh, needed to or the Youth Violence Strike Unit, uh, Strike Force, which was it was called, uh, needed to execute a search warrant um, out of District 2, I would get the page sometimes at 2 and 3 in the morning because they would make an arrest or if they made an arrest, you know, you know, with a search warrant, I would have to review it and send it back to them so that they could submit it to get it signed off on. Uh, or if there was an arrest made that we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, somebody who was a, a particular individual of importance or focus uh, that we knew that we were handling the arraignment the appropriately uh, the next morning, I got those calls as, as well. So, you know, those were some of the experiences that I had over those eight years. And, I, and, and the reason I appreciate you 
raising that question is because there's a narrative out there uh, about me that I'm somehow anti-cop uh, or that I don't have an appreciation for what it is law enforcement uh, does. I've been on the ride-alongs. I've worked hand-in-hand with law enforcement. I've sat with victims of homicide and, or the family members of who have lost loved ones uh, to homicide. I've been in the community meetings where people have raised uh, concern. I, I, I do not want an unsafe community to live in. I have a family. I am concerned about the safety. I have a different approach uh, to addressing those concerns around safety, which gets to some of the root causes that lead to disruption and crime in our communities. And it would be beyond me to subject my family and the community that I live in to greater harm um, because of some ideological position. I'm looking at evidence-based approaches uh, to addressing crime and disruption in community and one that also takes into account uh, race and class and how communities are treated differently. We're speaking with uh, Rasan Hall, candidate, uh, Plymouth County candidate uh, for uh, district attorney. So, uh, Rasan, um, uh, you, uh, we, your your opponent was here uh, last night. He said that um, you were uh, against um, cash bail. Uh, what's your position on cash bail? Yeah, I think cash bail has been disproportionately used against poor people and people of color, and I think we need to move away from using it. I recognize, the, and, and, and I think there needs to be some education on the role of bail. Bail is to ensure that a person comes to court the next day. The statute that provides for bail has a presumption that people should be released on their own recognizance. And if somebody is too dangerous uh, for themselves or the community or to someone else, um, that then they can be held pursuant to a a dangerousness statute. But when you look at how bail has been used uh, to disrupt people's lives, to hold people, uh, it's, it's problematic. And again, going back to our earlier conversation, how it is used by prosecutors to leverage guilty pleas, uh, it's problematic. And so I would not want to seek cash bail in low level, nonviolent uh, misdemeanor offenses. We're speaking uh, with uh, Rasan Hall, um, candidate, Plymouth County uh, candidate for district attorney. So um, is that to say, uh, would you, if you were elected, lobby the legislature to change the laws around uh, cash bail? I, I would. And, you know, and, and and to be clear, you know, we, we also have to be mindful about the safety concerns. That is not right. lost on me. Um, and even with the own po- if the policies that I would adopt within the district attorney's office, I, there's always going to be exceptions to the rules. There are never hard, bright line uh, policies uh, that exist without any uh, relation to the reality of what's happening in court or what's happening to uh, the individuals who are involved in the case. And so I I think, and that's one of my concerns with the governor's dangerousness bill. Uh, It's a one size fit all approach that will be, uh, will be misused and there's no safety valve for it. And, and that causes grave concern, especially when you look at uh, cases where people have been held on bail for any period of time and then the case gets dismissed there's an organization called the mass bail fund that Mm -hmm. in the the first kind of two to three years that they handled uh cases i think they handled maybe thirteen thousand cases where they bailed people out uh, who were too poor to afford bail 50 percent of those cases ended up being dismissed and so this means somebody was kept away from their family could have potentially lost their job their housing etc for a case that didn't even go anywhere uh we're speaking with uh, rasan hall candidate for uh district attorney in Plymouth County, and we're taking your calls at 508-996-0500. Good evening. Thanks for holding. Uh, good evening, uh, Mr. Hall. Thanks for running. It's um, regardless of party or wherever you're coming from, um, it's a brave thing to do, I think. <laughs> Put you. yourself out there. Um, 
what I would ask you is, with trying to get rid of bail, um, you know, reducing bail, we've seen that done on sort of large scale um, practice in, say, California, New York. And I don't see that it's made them any safer. Why do you think it would be uh, um, work better in Massachusetts by reducing bail when it hasn't worked on widespread um, states like California and, and New York? Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, <clears throat> that's a good question. And I think, you know, there is a lot of work that needs to be done around narratives uh, because there's a narrative about the increase in crimes and how it is attributed to some of the so-called progressive reforms or progressive prosecutors. Sure. But the reality is that there have been research and studies and, and, and everything that I'm going to do for the most part is going to be informed and driven uh, by research and, and evidence. And there is not empirical data that says that there is a correlation and we all know this or a lot of people know this correlation does not equal causation sure. there is not a correlation between the elimination of cash bail or the, or progressive prosecution policies and the increase in crime there are multiple factors that contribute uh, to the increase in crime and to the extent that we want to look at progressive practices that have been adopted by some prosecutors everybody likes to point to san francisco la chicago but nobody wants to look in our own backyard here in boston where rachel rollins was elected in 2018 on a progressive platform of not seeking cash bail for certain offenses, not prosecuting certain offenses in the first instance, and crime went down. We'd rather go to the fear-mongering tactic and technique of pointing to all of these other places and saying it's dangerous out there, and it's disingenuous, and it's just not accurate, and it belies the evidence that exists out there uh, to say that there are better ways to get better outcomes for our communities while still keeping us safe because we can make those investments in the underlying issues and root causes. 508-996-0500 is how you can get on with Attorney Hall. Good evening. Thanks for holding. Um, a question I have for Mr. Hall is he had said he wasn't going to um, prosecute low-level crimes. Does he actually have a list of these low-level crimes, what they are and why he won't prosecute them? Good question. Thanks for the call. Yeah, so we're still in the process of developing that list. But one of the things that I think is key is that it is not an absolute. Uh, and similar to what was done in Suffolk County, it is in the first instance. And going back to my own experience as a prosecutor, what I said was that we dismissed these types of cases all the time. Motor, yeah. Simple motor vehicle offenses, cases that did not involve a victim, uh, trespassing, disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace. And granted, these so-called quality of life crimes certainly have an impact on people in communities. But there's another part that doesn't get talked about when we say decline to prosecute. And that's the research that backs up the idea that people are less likely to come back into the system if they've been diverted out in the in the first instance. And why I say in the first instance, because everybody wants to talk about, you know, do the saber rattling and fear mongering about scoff laws and people who will just continue to reoffend. Well, those aren't going to be the people whose cases we dismiss. So it's not a bright line rule that we are not going to ever prosecute certain types of offenses. It's the first instance um, and that is going to be the default position. But if there is a reason to um, deviate from what the policy is, good seasoned, well-trained prosecutors will understand here is a person who is taking advantage of this policy and they need to be held to account in some other form or fashion. 508-996-0500 is how you get on. We're going to take one more break and then we'll be back with uh, Rasan Hall, candidate for District Attorney in Plymouth County. 
SF Station. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus. Uh, Chris will be back tomorrow, but we're joined by Rasan Hall, candidate for Plymouth County District Attorney. So um, we can probably fit in a couple more calls at 508-996-0500 if you want to talk to Attorney Hall. So before, uh, b- when you had uh, had your introduction earlier in the hour, uh, you had talked about uh, greater transparency and accountability. What did you mean by that? So one of the things that we did as a part of the What a Difference a DA Makes campaign uh, when I was at the ACLU uh, was send public records requests to all 11 district attorneys throughout the Commonwealth. We wanted to know uh, what their policies were, what their prosecution statistics were, what were some of the outcomes, what their budgets were, hiring practices, because in order for the people to be fully in informed about what it is their district attorneys do, uh, that information should be made publicly available. Most DA's offices don't have public information dashboards. Um, And so we sent those requests to all 11 and we got records requests back from 10. And those 10 district attorneys gave us what we wanted or close to what we wanted either for free uh, or for a nominal charge, except sure. one. That was the Plymouth County District Attorney's Office. Uh, we received a letter that said it would cost $1.2 million to fulfill a public records request. Um, they also said that it would take tantamount of 49 years worth of people hours to fulfill the request. And so as the ACLU, uh, we filed a lawsuit. As we were preparing to file the lawsuit, we called them. And the DA's office uh, hired a law firm on Plymouth County taxpayer dollars and said, oh, you can have these records for free. That's not what transparency is. Um, One of the things that I will do in my administration is making sure that we have clear policies, robust training, and a data dashboard. Uh, Granted, the current case management system is not a data analysis system, but there are numerous nonprofits and academic institutions in the county and in the Commonwealth and in the country that are more than willing to work with district attorney's offices to help cultivate that data and information to make sure that we are getting the best outcomes, to ensure that we are not making racial disparities any worse. There's Suffolk County DA's office is doing it. Middlesex County DA's office is doing it. It's 2020. There's no reason for us to continue to operate blindly like this. We have a recidivism rate in Massachusetts around 66 or 65 percent, depending on how you count recidivism. If you went to a car dealership and the dealer said two thirds of these cars you're going to have to bring back, you probably wouldn't spend your money there. Um, And you would probably expect that there would be some sort of diagnostic exam to find out what's going on or what the problem is. But yet we kind of continually throw money blindly into the system without any analysis uh, and no transparency around what that is. And so that's something that is a part of my vision for justice that I'd seen a uh, plan to bring to this office. 508-996-0500. Good evening. You're live with Attorney Hall. Oh, thank you. I'm um, really liking what I'm hearing this evening. And I have a, a two-part question, I guess. Um, my first is, wh- how do you view the role of, an at- of a district attorney um, with community engagement outside of the criminal legal sphere with general, like the community it's at large and community groups? Um, and secondly, what would you do right away if or, or when elected? 
All right. Uh, you've got about a minute and a half to answer this question. Okay. Thank you. So one of the things that I think is important is the district attorney to use the platform of this public elected office to really raise awareness about what it is the DA's office does and what services are needed in the community, shift resources to where they should um, um, be designated. And I think some of the things that I would start on day one is creating a policy uh, that is clear and accessible to the public that guides our district attorney's office on what it will do. Start the data collection process and create a conviction integrity bureau, not just post-conviction relief, not just looking at wrongful convictions, but looking at every aspect of uh, the life of a case to make sure that we are not making disparities worse, that we're not uh, creating any injustices, and that we're getting good analysis of how we're handling cases so that we can get the best outcomes for the residents of Plymouth County. Rasan Hall, candidate for district attorney in Plymouth County. Before I let you go, uh, where can people go to learn more about your campaign? So people can visit my campaign website. It's hallforda.com. That's hall, H-A-L-L, the number four, da.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook at that same uh, handle, Hall for DA, and on Twitter, Rasan D. Hall, R-A-H-S-A-A-N-D Hall. Uh, uh, Rasan Hall, candidate for district attorney. This is a race that is, uh, I think, gotten a lot of interest uh, from a lot of people. We're certainly interested in it. And I hope uh, to talk to you as, as your campaign progresses again here on uh, South Coast tonight. Thank you so much, Marcus. I appreciate the time.